from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our first scripture today is from Genesis, chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. Please listen to and hear the word of God. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Thank you, Adrian. Our second text uh, is also from the lectionary. The Gospel of Matthew, the 18th chapter, verses 21 through 35. Uh, continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave as he went out came upon one of his fellow slaves who owned, owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then the Lord summoned him and said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. 
So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from the heart. As hard as this is, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open these words afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who began in participation and worship in this time, that that you would change us in such a way that we would be different, that we would even be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Guy de Choliac was what we would call today a frontline healthcare worker. He actually was a 14th century French physician and he practiced medicine during the time when the Black Death reached its peak in Europe. When many of his peer physicians fled their posts or refused to treat patients, Guy was resolute in keeping his oath, resolute in fulfilling his mission in medicine, even to the point of contracting the disease himself. He once wrote that it was only by God's will that he lived through his own infection and illness. Well, well, during these very difficult and dark days, Guy also wrote one of the most important and well-regarded treatises about the Black Death, about the plague, something that medical, uh, modern rather, medical scholars continue to turn to even during this coronavirus time uh, to reflect on how one physician in his time and in his place Uh, talked about clinically the disease, but also talked about the impact the disease had on the society, that had on his psyche and the psyche of other physicians and certainly the psyche of cities and towns and nation states during the time. So he's not just interested in the clinical. He's not just interested in the the medicine. He was also interested in the impact, what this crisis was doing to the people. He wrote these words. The plague was so contagious that one person caught it from another not just when living nearby, but simply by looking at them. So much so that people died without servants and were buried without priests. Father would not visit son nor son father. Charity was dead. Hope prostrate. Physicians felt useless and ashamed inasmuch as they did not dare visit the sick for fear of infection. And when they did visit them, they could do very little and accomplished nothing. The despair and and helplessness in his words are obvious, I know. And and his tone is in line with the words of many of his contemporaries. Take, for example, Italian writer Giovanni Boccaccio. In the introduction to his masterwork produced in those very same years, uh, the Decameron, uh, Boccaccio paints a similar grim and dark social picture for the time. He wrote, neighbors never helped neighbors, and even relatives shunned each other. Brother deserted brother, uncle left nephew, sister forgot brother, and sometimes spouse neglected spouse. Worst of all, 
parents abandon their children as if they didn't know them. Charity, dead. Hope, prostrate. Neighbor, neglected neighbor. Relatives shunned one another. Parents even abandoned their children. These words remind us and serve as a sort of warning, I think, as to how easy it is for us when we're faced rather with plague or pandemic or, or social unrest or political consternation or even on a more personal level when we are uh, faced with hardships and, and tragedies and losses that we experience in our life, when we are facing or living through a crisis, these words remind us of how easy it is to turn away from one another. Or worse, how easy it is to turn against each other. And while our depravity and while our tribalism as humans is often ignited by calamity, the worst of us is often ignited by suffering. Crisis can also be the place where the spirit moves. Crisis can be the place where the spirit stirs up in us acts of charity, acts of goodness, acts of justice. Friends, much of my preaching in these pandemic days has been motivated by a deep longing and desire that the church collectively and that we individually will face the crises of our time and be able to write a different script than Guy or Boccaccio wrote for their time. That our script would sound different. A script where charity is alive and well, where hope stands on two feet with its head held high a script where love of neighbor is the rule of the day. Now, you may have, have noticed that the, that the title of my sermon, it flashed there on the banner on your screen, or it's in the digital copy of your bulletin. The sermon for today is one single word, the word mercy. And, and here's where I want to begin uh, to connect the dots with my opening and, and where we're headed, I hope, uh, this morning. Because it concerns me, it really does concern me, that people might, when reflecting on 2020 and this season of our living, these crises that we face, that, that there's a possibility that people will write that, that mercy was on life support that mercy was on hospice. Maybe they'll even write that mercy had died in 2020. That, that mercy was, was prostrate, that mercy had been neglected and shunned and abandoned. I, I've been thinking about mercy in these terms because the lectionary text set before us this morning, the one from Genesis and the one from Matthew, bring our full attention to the priority and practice of mercy as something core, as something fundamental to the Christian way of life. Friends, Christianity without mercy is no Christianity at all. So this morning, I'd like to invite you to consider with me what it means to practice and what it means to prioritize mercy in our lives. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are 
the merciful. And so let us inquire in this very hour, what does it mean for us to be merciful? What does it mean to be counted among that number? And really, this sermon, it's, some sermons have three points. Some sermons have more than that. This sermon has one big idea. It anchors us in this time. It, it sort of sets the conversation at the beginning, at the end, when we're thinking about mercy. And here it is. To understand what it is and what it means to be merciful from a Christian perspective is to be fully aware and responsive to God's mercy in our own lives. For the Christian, those two things have a correlation. They're symbiotic. The ways in which we recognize and activate God's mercy in our lives directly corresponds with the mercy that we bear in the world. That even in our suffering, that even in our restlessness, even in our loneliness, even in our moments of feeling abandoned or in the depths of our own sin or the depths of the pain that the sins committed against us have rendered, that even in these moments and these experiences that God is merciful, that God remains good to us and good to the world. The story of Joseph is, is one of my favorites in all of Scripture. It appears in the book of Genesis, chapters 37 through 50, and I think it elevates this big idea about mercy and how our mercy corresponds to the activation of God's mercy in our own lives. A little bit of the, the backstory here. Joseph was the son of Jacob. He was the grandson of Isaac. He was the great-grandson of the patriarch Abraham. Now, what you need to know is that family relationships and family harmony are a sticky wicket in the first book of the Bible, and Joseph's story is no exception. He was uh, declared the favorite of Jacob's 12 sons, and his father, to mark that favoritism, gave him a magnificent robe that contained royal colors. There was no question about it. Joseph was Jacob's favorite. Joseph also possessed a gift that his brothers did not possess. Joseph was able to see the future through his dreams. He was also given the ability to interpret other people's dreams. So Joseph was not only the favorite, he was sort of a spiritual prodigy in his family and in his community, and his brothers could not stand him. And so they devised a wicked plan where they would sell him into slavery and stage his death to convince their father that Joseph had been killed. And so they sold him off to sla into slavery. They took his robe, the one that was filled with these royal colors, and smeared the blood of a goat all over it. They brought it back to their father and gave him the news that Joseph had been killed. The betrayal of these siblings was every bit cold-hearted as it was brutal. And the announcement of Joseph's death absolutely crushed Jacob. It broke his heart. Joseph was eventually taken to Egypt where he became the house servant of a high-ranking Egyptian official named Potiphar. And as the story goes, Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph. 
and Joseph refused uh, those advances. And then she accused him of rape. And, And so Joseph was arrested and he was thrown into prison where his punishment would most certainly be death. And while he was in prison, Joseph actually interpreted the dream of a prison guard, and when word got out that Pharaoh was having these very scary, uh, horrific dreams in his own life that left him puzzled and afraid, Joseph was actually brought into the Pharaoh's house to interpret those dreams. And his accurate interpretation, his accurate analysis, allowed Egypt to prepare for a famine that was on the horizon. Joseph's gift by God's grace saved the day and Joseph was eventually promoted to the rank of of governor where he ruled with wisdom and with justice. As the famine struck the whole world, Jacob and his sons actually get the idea to travel to Egypt because Egypt was the only nation who was wise enough to prepare for this famine. Pharaoh's storehouses were the only ones with grain. And so they show up before the governor, not knowing that it is Joseph. And skipping ahead a bit uh, in in the story, they make their request, and, and eventually Joseph finally reveals his identity to his brothers. And they have a sort of moment of reconciliation. It is not total, and it's not complete. We'll have to wait for that a few chapters later. So he reveals himself to his brothers, which gives him the opportunity to also reunite with his father, which he does. Jacob eventually dies, and when he dies, Joseph is is part of the processional that, that buries him in the land of his ancestors, which brings us to our text today. With, with their father dead and buried, the, the brothers now wonder if their shield, if their cover is now gone. And now is the time for Joseph to exact his revenge. His brothers may have thought, well, as long as Jacob is alive, Joseph won't do us harm. But then they wonder, as Jacob has now died, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us? And pays us back in full for all the wrong that we had done to him. And this prompts them to face a crisis of their own. That they have to acknowledge their sin. They have to acknowledge all the pain and the heartbreak and the devastation that they had caused. In this moment, they cite their father's wish before he died. That they were to go to Joseph. That they were to confess. And that they would request his mercy. And as they make their confession, both Joseph, Joseph and his brothers begin to weep that the pain of their sin to sell him into slavery, to break apart their, their family. All that Joseph and Jacob had endured over those many years, that pain was just as fresh as it was then as it, as it was back when it happened. And it's at that point in the story that Joseph speaks some of the most poignant and memorable words in all of Scripture. Adrian read them for us this morning. Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God, Joseph says, even though you intended to do me harm? God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as God is doing right now today. So have no fear, he says. I myself will provide for you and for your households. In this way, the writer says, Joseph reassured them, speaking kindly 
to them. Joseph was merciful. Joseph chooses to conform to the way of mercy. And I'm convinced that his choice for mercy, his choice to be merciful with his brothers was deeply rooted in his recognition of God's mercy and goodness in his own life. God was merciful in the experience of rejection by his brothers and separation from his beloved father. Even though God did not cause that, God remained merciful. God was merciful when Joseph was shackled by the atrocious sin of slavery. God did not cause that. And God was still merciful in the midst of it. God was merciful through false accusations. God did not cause that, but God remained merciful. God was merciful when Joseph was in prison. God did not cause that, but God remained merciful. God was merciful in granting him gifts and the wisdom to prepare for a devastating famine. God did not cause that, but God was merciful within it. God preserved the lives of countless people, including Jacob's house. Through Joseph's wisdom and decisive action, God was merciful all through that time. Even though his brothers meant him harm and acted with evil intent, Joseph saw God's hand of goodness and mercy every step of the way. And it was God's mercy in in Joseph's life that, that gave birth to the mercy that he offered his brothers. It was God's goodness and kindness in Joseph's life that gave rise to the goodness and kindness he offered to his repentant siblings. Joseph made that choice. But I want to be clear about this one very important truth. This choice could only have been made by Joseph. This theological declaration could have only been made by him. His brothers couldn't have showed up and have said, well, we meant this for evil, but God obviously meant this for good. As the offenders, they cannot make that claim. They have no power nor authority to do so. It's only the one who has suffered. It's only the one who's been victimized, who now has the power, who now has the authority to interpret and to name where God's mercy had shown up in their lives and where it hadn't. The way God was working for redemption in and through their suffering. The repentant offender stands silent before the one they have injured and does not seek to intervene or try to reconfigure any attempt by the one who's suffering, by the victim, to speak of how God was or wasn't working in their midst. And this is the only acceptable posture for the offender to take. It is, in a way, I think, a merciful stance. Repentance, silence, and acceptance of mercy if and when it comes from the person you've wronged. When we offend and we abuse and we sin against others, this is the merciful posture we must take. So what does it mean to be merciful? It means to recognize and exercise our power to conform to God's mercy in our own lives, whether we are the victim or we're the offender. 
And this is the lesson that I think is lost on the, on the servant who is forgiven and released from his debt by the merciful king. In Jesus' parable, the, the forgiven servant is obtuse to the mercy he had received as he demanded repayment, grabbed a fellow servant by the throat who owed him a much smaller debt than what he even owed the king. Mercy is not his instinct. Punishment is, retribution is, domination is. He is not conformed to mercy. And how can he not? I mean, how is this guy choosing to act this way in this story? How can he be so ignorant to the gifts of mercy he's just received? How can he be so hard-hearted when the crushing burden of debt has been lifted from his own shoulders? And I think that's the power of this parable. For any Christian, anyone who dares claim the name of Christ, when they hear this story, those questions pierce our hearts and ask us the same thing. How can you or I in one moment receive the benefits of Christ's cross and his resurrection, receive his mercy and his forgiveness and his grace, and then the next moment seek vengeance, seek to punish, seek to dominate someone else in our debt? How can you in one moment recognize your own depravity and your own need for God's forgiveness and then stand in vengeful judgment and lord it over someone else? Friends, authentic Christianity conforms to the way of mercy. There is no other way to be Christian. And Lord knows we need mercy in these times of crisis. In these difficult days, mercy cannot be on hospice. Mercy cannot be on life support. Mercy cannot die. Mercy cannot be prostrate. Mercy cannot be neglected, nor abandoned, nor forgotten. Mercy must live in and through us. Mercy must be served in our repentance and our confession for the sin and abuse we have caused, for the debt that we have created. So remember the mercy God has poured out in our lives through Christ. Remember that God is working for good. And remember that, that the mercy God has showered upon us is the mercy that we've been called to shower upon the world. Jesus said it, blessed are the merciful. Will we be a part of that number? May it be so for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the world. Amen.